So there are moments in life when we face something that causes us to have to step back and reevaluate everything. I remember a moment like this in my life about 13 years ago, um, back in 2008. Holly and I had just been married, and um, we were running a family-owned business in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, and things were going well, and we had invested in some new equipment for the business at the beginning of 2008, and then towards the fall of 2008, the U.S. market just tanked. And within a span of two to three months, our business lost over 70% of its clients. And we got the wonderful news that Holly was expecting our first child. And it was in that moment that everything in my life just came into focus. And I just had to reevaluate everything. It's caused me to just examine what are my goals for my family? Am I prepared to be a father? Is this profession that I'm in even sustainable? Is this business how I can protect and provide for my family? Is this even my calling? Maybe you at some point in time in your life have experienced a moment like this where everything just comes into focus and you're left with nothing but to reevaluate everything. I think our passage today is meant to be that kind of moment for us. Today, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And it concludes the section of Luke that we've been studying through these past three weeks. So before we get to the passage, I want us to remember the context that we're in so that we can see how this passage that we're in today is going to fit with what we've been learning. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1 starts out, he also said to the disciples. And with these words, we're drawn into this teaching that Jesus is giving for his disciples. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, what we saw was that Jesus was teaching them to be wise and shrewd stewards. I think you can summarize verses 1 through 13 like this. At some point in time in life, wealth will fail us. And what we do with it matters in light of eternity. And because of that, what we're called to do with our funds is use them for the sake of God's kingdom, particularly by giving to others for gospel advancement. That's what we learned in verses 1 through 13. And that teaching ended with Jesus declaring in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, the way you use your money reveals who you are ultimately serving. And this is important for us to understand because we have to remember that Jesus Christ is always after people's hearts, not just what they do. He wants them to see their hearts and their greatest need. And if you remember in verse 14, Luke records what happens after this teaching. He says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. 
Note that the Pharisees don't just silently reject the teaching of Jesus. They go a step further because of their love of money. They ridicule Jesus. And this shows us that their rejection isn't just one teaching by Jesus. Their rejection is of Jesus himself. And Jesus responded this way in verse 15. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And this response by Jesus shows us that the situation has changed a little. He's no longer teaching his disciples, but he's addressing the Pharisees. This response also shows us that what follows after this is Jesus specifically exposing the hearts of these Pharisees. And if you remember last week, Pastor Steve covered the first way Jesus exposed their hearts by showing them that they were blatantly disregarding the Scripture's teaching on divorce. This week, we're going to see Jesus move back to addressing their heart's love of money and a faulty understanding that riches or poverty are an indication of God's favor. And he's going to do this for us through a parable or an illustrative story about life, death, and eternity. And this is designed to show us plain truths, not to give us details about what eternity is going to look like. So just forewarning, I'm not going to get into the weeds here. It's designed to show us truths, and so I want to walk through this passage by pointing to five truths that I see Jesus teaching through this story. So dive in with me to the first truth, which is from verses 19 through 23. And this truth is that what people have in this life is not an indication of eternal security. As we're moving through this, focus on the contrasting descriptions Jesus is going to give of the rich man and the poor man. Start in verse 19. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. These descriptions are of an exalted status and an exuberant amount of wealth. The purple color that is mentioned here was made from a murex shellfish, and it was very difficult to manufacture. One source indicates that it probably took about 10,000 shellfish to produce one gram of this dye, which would have only dyed the hem of a garment. And this man is clothed in it. Not only was it hard to manufacture, but it was very, um, it, its color was very pronounced and it was resistant to fading. So this was a very expensive and a very highly desirable fabric. Jesus even says that he was covered in fine linen, which is also a term that carries the connotation of something showy and pretentious. So what we see here is that this rich man is flaunting his wealth through his clothing. But we also see, notice in verse 19, that he's not just flaunting it with his clothing, he's flaunting it with his eating habits. He's dining in luxury and in excess every single day. 
And then Jesus introduces the first contrast of the poor man in verse 20. He says, At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. You can feel it. This is descriptions of a very, very lowly estate, especially in Jewish society. This man was destitute, and he was in pain. It was so bad that someone had to come lay him at the gate, and dogs were licking his sores. Do you see the contrast of the fortunes of this rich man and this poor man? This is what they were like in life. Now, starting in verse 22, feel the weight of the contrast of them in their eternal state. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. For the audience at this moment, this is extremely shocking. You see, the false teaching that having good health and wealth and prosperity is some kind of indication of God's favor is not a modern day concept. The Pharisees and most of the Jews at that time believed that the amount of wealth someone had indicated that person was blessed by God. And if someone was sick and in poverty, it probably indicated a curse by God. In John 9-2, the disciples themselves, passing by a blind man from birth, asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So you can see this idea was ingrained in this culture. And while it might not be that different from today, it would be particularly shocking for this audience at this moment, especially the Pharisees who just ridiculed Jesus because of their love of money. Jesus is effectively saying to all who will hear, wake up. What you have and are hoarding in this life is not safe. Now, I think there's a couple of other little things that just are used by Jesus to prick the heart even a little bit deeper. Did you notice that the poor man is named, but the rich man isn't? And the name Lazarus means God has helped or helped by God. Notice also that this poor man was carried to Abraham's side, which was indicating a place of honor. You might have picked it up by now. The Pharisees are the rich man. And the reality is they would have treated Lazarus the same way because they attributed his condition to sin. Yet in this parable, in this story, Jesus shows Lazarus at Abraham's side, exalted. And as they hear his name, they hear that it was God who helped this poor man and not the rich man. You see, these contrasts are designed to cause us to reevaluate. They all point to the truth that what people have in this life is not an indication of their eternal security. 
And we can easily be tempted to think this way, right? There's a high chance some of you right now are trapped in the lie that blessings or trials is some kind of indication of God's favor or curse. And Jesus wants to say emphatically, don't be fooled. What people have in this life is not an indication of eternal security. Let's consider then the next truth that we see from verses 22 to 24. And this truth is that death is coming and hell's torment is real. Look at verse 22 again. It says the poor man died and the rich man also died. It's a simple truth, but death is coming. It doesn't matter one's status. It doesn't matter one's position in life. The end of it is always death. That is, unless the Lord comes back. Come, Lord Jesus. What comes after death is what matters. And this passage only briefly focuses on heaven. It speaks once of the comfort Lazarus receives there, Because the intention by Jesus is to warn of the realities of hell. Now, I want to make two brief comments before we go any further. First, I know that some people think that we should just avoid talking about hell. Perhaps you're one of those. Maybe you even think that all talking about hell does is just scares people into believing. And I get it. Hell is an uncomfortable topic. But we should never shy away from any teaching that comes from Scripture, especially if it comes from the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, I know for many, this truth causes great sorrow and pain because of someone you know that has passed without believing or someone you know that doesn't believe who's still alive. I weep with you. But I was reminded this week, church, that there is no pain. There's no sorrow. There are no tears that will not one day be wiped away. Our grief in this life is just but for a moment. But our joy and our hope is eternal. So let that sink in and move back to our text where we see Jesus highlight how the torment of hell is real. In verses 23 to 24, he says, and in Hades, just another word for hell, being in torment, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. Jesus doesn't mince words. He shows right away that this rich man is in agony. 
The term used for torment actually came to mean applying torture as means of distraction. I'm not going to go any further because there's kids in this room, but you can get the sentiment. Jesus then describes how the anguish in this flame is so great that the rich man just wants Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool his tongue. I tried this at home as an object lesson. I got a glass of water and I dipped my finger down into it. Don't worry, I didn't drink it afterwards. And I lifted it back up. And there was just one drop of water that wasn't even big enough to fall from my finger. This rich man's anguish was so much that the wet tip of a finger would have relieved some of it. And this torment and this anguish is not something Jesus wants us to miss, so he repeats both terms again in verse 25, verses 25 and 28. Church, I think we should almost hear the poor, the rich man cry, have mercy on me. And it should hit our hearts and it should land as it should on our hearts because it's reality. Death is coming and hell's torment is real. Consider then the next truth that we see Jesus teach us in verses 25 and 26. It's a sad truth as well. And it's that comfort cannot come to those who enter eternity unprepared. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. The rich man is asking for just a little mercy, and Abraham says no. He says, remember. Remember your life. Remember how you received your good things. And remember how Lazarus received bad. This is the result, my child. Now he's comforted and you're in anguish. There's no turning back after this life. There's no comfort for those who fail to enter heaven. It gets more serious as Abraham describes why it's not even possible should this rich man deserve it. In verse 26 he says, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Note the finality of the situation for this man. There is a great chasm that has been fixed. It's established. It won't change. Think of the galaxy that we live in called the Milky Way. It's estimated that the Milky Way is sextillion kilometers across and that it would take 1.7 billion years to travel at a normal pace from one end to the other. I looked on the NASA website, and they said, even if you could travel at the speed of light, it would still take you 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way galaxy. But this chasm is more fixed than that. It's impossible to cross. There are no options after this life. 
Comfort cannot come to those who enter eternity unprepared. There's one more truth that I see in these two verses, and that's what we do in this life matters. Notice again the beginning of verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in a like manner bad things. Now let me make sure it's crystal clear that Jesus is not in any way saying the rich go to heaven and the poor go to hell. That's not what he's teaching. And as we'll see soon, the focus isn't even primarily on wealth, but it's on a repentant heart. But before we get to that, we should let this have the impact it's supposed to have on us. Have you noticed that in this parable, the rich man clearly knows who Lazarus is? He knows it's him at Abraham's side. And he asked for him by name. This infers that he saw Lazarus laid at his gate, longing for table scraps. He probably saw him being licked by the dogs and in need of help, yet he never did anything about it. Instead, he flaunted his wealth and luxury. He spent everything on himself, enjoying good things with no regard for others. Now, while I want to make it clear that Jesus is not teaching that the solution to this, the way to get into heaven is to give your money away. He's not teaching that's the way to get into heaven. However, I don't want to neglect that Jesus is addressing the love of money that we're all tempted towards, and he's calling all who listen to consider how we use it. Part of what he's doing with this story is reinforcing the truths that he taught us in verses 1 through 13 of wise stewardship. He is saying, examine your life, examine your position, examine your wealth, and consider what you're doing with it. We should see that what we do with our money matters in this life. It matters not as a way to gain a right standing with God, but revealing a heart that has truly been gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the concluding statement of verse 13? You cannot serve God and money. If money has a grip on your heart, then God will not. What we do in this life matters. But hear me, what matters more than what we do with our money is what we do with the person of Jesus Christ. And that points to the final truth at the end of this parable in verses 27 through 31. And that truth is to heed the resounding testimony of God's Messiah. I want to say that again because this is what we need the most. Heed the resounding testimony of God's Messiah. Look at verses 27 through 28. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. Note again the focus in on the torment it's so great that the rich man says, if you can't help me, please send Lazarus to help my brothers to warn them. But look at how Abraham responds in verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man is asking for Lazarus to be sent to his family to warn them 
And Abraham effectively says they have everything they need in the words of Moses and the prophets. But the rich man's not done. He tries to reason with Abraham. In verse 30, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Pay attention again to Abraham's response. Verse 31, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Make note of three repetitions in verses 29 through 31. Twice, Moses and the prophets are mentioned. Twice, hearing them is commended. And twice there is mentioned someone rising from the dead. And notice that right in the middle of these repetitions is the rich man mentioning repentance. You see, that's what it's about. Repentance. And I'm convinced that this whole section at the end of this parable is pointing forward to the ends of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24, verses 21 through 32. Turn there with me. And you decide for yourselves. Let me start by setting the scene. Jesus has been crucified when we come to the end of Luke's gospel. And in verses 1 through 12, Luke records the resurrection of Jesus and women witnessing the resurrection and relaying it to the disciples. But what we see is the disciples don't believe. And in verse 13, starts a story of two disciples walking on a road to a town called Emmaus. What we find out is that they're talking about all that had happened to Jesus. And suddenly Jesus appears walking along beside them, but they can't tell who he is. And so he inquires about what they're talking about and about why they're sad. And the crux of their sadness is mentioned in verse 21 of chapter 24, where one of them says, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we hoped he was the Messiah promised. Luke goes on to detail them telling about their disbelief in the women's testimony of Jesus' resurrection, to which Jesus replies to them, and pay attention to this, verse 25, O foolish ones, Slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We find out after this, they're sitting down to break bread at a table, and that's when their eyes are open and they realize Jesus is there. And then in verse 32, they said this to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures to us? Do you see the connection with our passage? Do you see what our passage is pointing to? Moses and the prophets primarily point to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's their ultimate purpose. Jesus has risen from the dead as God's promised Messiah. And the scriptures resound with his testimony over and over and over again. 
people don't need a new miracle. They need to heed the testimony of the scriptures and the word of the gospel. And they need to repent and turn from their love of anything else, including money, and place saving faith in Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that's the primary point of this passage, not just for us to start giving our money away. Certainly, that's an application here, is to consider how we use our money. We'll get to that in a second. But Jesus' primary point is that you need your heart softened towards him. And love of money might be what's in the way for you just like it was for the Pharisees. That's what we need to escape the torments of hell, is the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me try to wrap this up in tangible ways for us to take away. What do we do with these five truths? Here's a few suggestions. First, Don't be fooled into believing something more is needed for you or for others to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is a proclaimed word. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this proclaimed news, this good word, the Bible tells us is the power of God unto salvation. I remember working at a Christian camp in my early days of university. And it was the last day of one of the weeks of this camp and I was sitting there with a student who didn't believe in Jesus Christ and I was sharing the gospel with him again and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Ben, God will have to work a miracle in my life for me to believe in him. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you're thinking that right now. Sadly, to my shame now, I responded simply, well, God works miracles all the time, and I'll be praying for him to do that in your life. And then he left. And honestly, church, I wish I could go back. And I could say, don't believe that lie. Christ is here today for you to turn and receive Don't wait for a miracle. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the rich man. Hear the word of Jesus Christ. You see, what we all need to hear is the testimony of the Scriptures. I'm not saying God doesn't work in miraculous ways. I'm not saying we shouldn't long for God to work in miraculous ways in people's lives. But I am saying that we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that is necessary for people to come to Jesus Christ. What they need is the gospel. What they need is the proclaimed word. Second takeaway. I mentioned this a little earlier. Evaluate your life in light of the teaching we've received over, from Jesus over the past three weeks. It's meant to get you to think about your heart. Where's your heart in relationship to money and other loves? Are you serving money and pleasure? Or are you really serving God? Has your love of money and other pleasures kept you from turning to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Is it keeping you from opening your eyes to the needs around you and helping others? Reflect. Take it in. Think about it. That's what we're called to do. 
And then finally, let the truth of hell break your heart. If you haven't confessed your sins to God and you haven't turned to Christ, let the torment, let the anguish, let the finality of hell shake you up today. We were in the middle of singing the bridge of Great Are You, Lord, and there's this overwhelming sense in my heart to just pray for someone in this room to turn to Christ. And so I'm pleading with you if you're here, or if you're watching at home, I'm pleading with you, turn to Christ. See the reality. Know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of all who trust in him. Know that he was risen from the grave. And he reigns victoriously. Know that because of that resurrection, the price that he paid on the cross is sufficient for the payment for all of the sins to anyone who comes to him. That can be you today. And we will rejoice with you. And church, if you have repented and you are a follower of Christ, let the truth of hell break your heart. Let the torment, let the anguish, let the finality of hell shake you up. Let it change how you view this world. Let it cause you to weep for the lost who are around you. Let it move you to give your sake for spreading the gospel to others. It's part of what I think we're supposed to do in response to a teaching like this. It should remind us that life here is short, eternity is long. I read a quote from J.C. Ryle that I think captures where I really long for our hearts as a church to be when we consider the truths that we've read today about hell. He says this. He says, God knows that I never speak of hell without myself experiencing pain and sorrow. I would gladly offer the salvation of the gospel to the very chief of sinners. I would willingly say to the vilest and most corrupt of mankind on his deathbed, repent and believe on the Lord Christ and thou shalt be saved. Is this what happens to us when we think of these truths? Do we have sorrow and pain when we consider those who are lost and dying around us? And will it move us to share the gospel? Let this passage, let this truth, let this parable move us to evaluate everything and to live our lives for the sake of spreading the glory of Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me as I pray this over us? Our Father in heaven, you, you know my weakness, you know my frailty, you know my inability to communicate perfectly the truth of your word. And I pray that you would move in spite of those weaknesses. God, I ask that your word would pierce into our hearts God, that it would change us as a people called by your name. And God, if there's someone who's not here that doesn't know you, that they will turn. That you will draw them to yourself. Remove the veil from their eyes. Let them see the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Seal these truths in our hearts. Let them remind us of your mercy. Let us be thankful for that mercy. Let them remind us of the power of your gospel, the truth of the testimony of Scripture, and move us to share with the world around us the news that they just so desperately need, God. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.